five years ago, a friend of mine invited me to come uh, with him to visit Israel. And so we did a whirlwind tour in four, four or five days all over the country. And of course, we went to the Sea of Galilee, the center of, uh, of uh, much of Jesus' public ministry. Many stories like today's of Jesus crossing the sea by boat, of ministry in cities near the sea or coastal cities like Capernaum. Uh, the sea is in the northern part of the, the country. It's not so much a sea as a, a, a lake, five miles across roughly. Fresh water feeds into the Jordan River, comes down, and eventually empties into the Dead Sea, which is very salty because it has no escape route. Um, and while we were there, one of the more fascinating things on the whole trip, we visited a little museum that also sits on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, just to the west. And there, there's a boat that was discovered just a few years ago, I think in 1983, uh, that had been submerged in the muck of the, uh, of the, the, the lake there. The, uh, there was a drought there, and the sea had receded, or the lake had receded, and they found this boat, and it was dated, um, it's estimated to be about 2,000 years old, and uh, it's roughly the the size and scale of what you can imagine to be a, a fishing boat in the time of Jesus. Of course, 2,000 years ago would be about that time. We have no way of knowing if Jesus ever rode in that boat or, or uh, rode R-O-A-D in that boat or, or um, perhaps R-O-W-E-D. But we do know something about what a boat looks like in ancient Israel about the time of Jesus. It wouldn't have been very big. Surely wouldn't have been room enough for a number of grown men to sleep, but Jesus goes with his disciples and find, we find this story that Jesus is asleep and his disciples are very much awake. And, um, and you, can, you can imagine having seen this boat, if you can't, have never, if you can't get over there, uh, find a picture of it online. It's about 25 feet long, I believe that's right, about 25 feet long and, and probably about six feet wide, and you can just, you can picture a group of men uh, crossing this lake in this boat. With that in mind, let's read uh, from Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We'll start with verse 23. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use it. I don't know if they got put out today, but there were some on the back table there. Welcome to take one if you need one as well. Use it to, uh, uh, to read on your own. Jesus calms the storm, Matthew 8, 23, we'll read through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went to him and woke him and said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God stands forever. You pray with me. <coughs> Father, now may the words of my mouth... And the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts and minds uh, 
be directed by you, be pleasing to you, be helpful and useful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Greek, it's just three words. Save, Lord. We're dying. We're perishing. Save, Lord, we're dying. Matthew, in this whole account, has had this expressed purpose of trying to show us that Jesus is God. Jesus taught as one with authority, and now he's acting, showing himself powerful as one with authority. In fact, authority that only God has. He says, your sins are forgiven, and the people recognize only God can forgive sins. He says, your servant is healed. And even though Jesus wasn't physically present there, The centurion's servant is healed. Only God can heal by speaking a word. And someone's healed in another place entirely. And now Jesus changes the weather. Saw a funny video about the weather and about all the... um, Here in, uh, in San Diego and Los Angeles. And even this comedian at the end of it after he's been making fun of all the weather forecasters' comments about the rain, says, as if they had any power to change it. Everyone recognizes we have no power to change the weather, but God himself has power to change the weather. Matthew, in his gospel, in this part of the gospel, is particularly concerned to say, Jesus is God. Quote on the front of the the bulletins today from the ancient pastor, teacher, scholar, John Chrysostom says, his sleeping made it evident that he was a man. His calming of the seas declared him God. Here we have the uh, two natures of Christ, the things that were debated for centuries. People kept probing deeper and deeper, who is this person of Jesus? And other people would come up with new ideas. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus was just the shell of a human body and God filled the shell and so his soul was the soul of God, but the body was the flesh of man, the shell of, of a man. And the people went to the scriptures and they said, no, that doesn't fit with what the Bible says. Others said, well, maybe God uh, just for a time became Jesus. And he lived as Jesus for a while, and then afterward he became the Holy Spirit. And these modes existed in different places and different times. People went back and they found in the scripture, they said, No, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. It says God, by his word, spoke, and all these came into power, and then John the beginning of his gospel says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word and the spirit all existed from the beginning together, not different modes. Here we see Jesus both in his humanity. He grew tired. All the other disciples recognized Jesus had been the one doing the bulk of the work, the heavy lifting, teaching and healing. And he was the one who needed rest in the front of this boat while they to the work of sailing across the sea, he was human, fully human. He surely, surely had amazing abilities and could stay up all night and pray, but he still grew tired. And yet, 
In these few verses, we see both Jesus' humanity and his deity expressed very clearly, without mistake. He was God. Who else can speak the word and the waves listen to him? The winds die down, the storms stop. We have no power to do that, but God does. Now, these three words are expressed in similar fashions with the other Gospels. Mark also records this event, and Luke does as well. Sometimes, though, the writers of the Gospels mean to communicate different things out of Jesus' various activities. And so while Matthew is particularly focused here on proving that Jesus is God, Mark gives us a little bit more detail about how the disciples asked. It may not have been as brief as three questions. Rather, Mark says, Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? Which begs another question that the disciples were probably asking, but that we also tend to ask, and that is, not just, is Jesus God, but is God good? You see, we see Jesus in complete control of this situation, but we oftentimes run into situations ourselves where we're forced to ask, God, in this suffering, in this pain, in this evil that we see around us, are you good? God, do you not care that I'm barely making it here, that I'm holding on by a thread, that my marriage is struggling, that the money ends before the month ends, that I have this chronic illness, that somebody I love has this chronic illness, that somebody I love is about to die? Why, God, do you not care? And I think that's one of the main questions that we need to ask when we come to this passage. God, Do you not care? What is the point of suffering? Doesn't suffering cause many of us to doubt and to despair and to perhaps fear like the disciples did? Let's look at two answers to this question. The first one is from a much more philosophical point of view, and the second one is from a much more personal point of view. From the philosophical point of view, uh, David Hume, the famous philosopher who... um, who was hostile toward God, who was very humanistic in his approach, expressed it, I paraphrase, suffering proves that God is not worthy of my full worship. You see, either God is good, but he's not powerful enough to prevent suffering, or God is powerful, all powerful, but he's not good enough to keep suffering at bay. I mean, it can't be both, he says, either or, and whatever he lacks, he's not worthy of our worship. Can God be truly good and, and all-powerful at the same time? And here's the very brief answer to that question. We can probe this over and over, and that is to say that just because we can't see the goodness that may result the goodness of God in everything does not mean that it isn't necessarily there. 
You see, oftentimes we assume that we are in the position of God and able to discern what is truly good and what is truly evil. And based on that discernment, we judge other people and ultimately God. Uh, the, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga described this scene. It may, it may help you. He said, listen, if we are looking for a St. Bernard in a tent pup tent and we go and we open the pup tent and there's no St. Bernard, we can say relatively conclusively there's no St. Bernard in there. See, but if there exists a small stinging insect whose bite is incredibly powerful that we can barely see if at all and we open the pup tent and we don't see it, we oftentimes conclude with equal confidence If I can't see it, it's not there. The question we have to ask, at least philosophically here, is if we can't see the good, is it not necessarily there? Paul, when he writes to the church in Rome, who is surely going through many difficulties and persecutions and sufferings, says, The Spirit knows our concerns, and He groans for us to express our concerns. To God, And then he goes on to say that all things work together for the good of those who love me. All things work together for the good of those that God has called uh, for himself. Called, God has called to himself. That those who have responded to God's call. All things work together for good. And so we have to at least say physics, philosophically, just because we can't see the good doesn't mean that there's not good there. Now that doesn't take us too far. At least takes us to the point where we say the existence of evil doesn't disprove God. (coughs) Nor does it disprove that God is good. It simply says we can't understand all the reasons that God has for bringing suffering. That's the philosophical side. Let's take it to the personal side. And I want us to see here that God is not like the impersonal God of the um, Greek mythologies where Zeus and the other gods were set aside from the dangers that they were putting humanity and the other gods through. He doesn't sit apart from it, but God himself enters into the boat with us, with all of humanity and its suffering. See that Jesus got into the boat here, but Jesus didn't just get into this single boat. He got into the metaphorical boat. He did not sit removed, but he came and he entered into the suffering of humanity with us. Now this has to at least cause us to pause and say, why, if there wasn't some reason for suffering, Would God choose to enter into the suffering? Why would God leave a place where there is no suffering, there is no death, there is no decay, and enter into it with his people? Now let me take this a step further and point out just a difference between Jesus and his suffering and the suffering of many other martyrs. Because, of course, Jesus isn't just asleep in the boat. Take note of that. All the other disciples are freaking out that they're going to die, and what is Jesus doing? He's calm. He's sleeping peacefully. 
in the midst of this storm. But Jesus doesn't endure all suffering peacefully. What does he do when he goes to the cross and he's about to bear the weight of the cross? We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating so hard that he's, he's bleeding. The stress is so much that he is bleeding. He prays to God, God, will you take this burden from me? And then we see on the cross that he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've looked at recently that this does not mean that God, that Jesus had given up all hope, but he recognizes that God will eventually rescue him, looking forward in the psalm that he's quoting and referring to that whole psalm, but still he recognizes that there is a great burden that he is carrying for, uh, for that season. Now compare that to other martyrs who have died in the name of Christ or other martyrs who have died for certain causes. Even in the time of Jesus, just a few decades before, there was a famous revolt among the Jewish people led by the the Maccabeans. Uh, You may have heard of them, Uh, Judas, Judah, Maccabea, uh, Maccabea, and, and a number of other people in their family. And they led a fairly successful revolt against the Syrians who were, uh, who were at that time occupying the area of Israel. But yet all of them faced death as martyrs eventually, and they were famous for going to their death bravely and without complaint, standing against these authorities the whole time. John Fox wrote a book uh, called uh, um, Book of Martyrs, where he recounts all of the martyrs throughout Christian history, or a number of the martyrs throughout Christian history, and he highlights how brave many of them went to their death. Two of them, Nicholas Ridley and and Hugh Latimer, by the way, our dog is named after Nicholas Ridley, if you've ever wondered. Nicholas Ridley, Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake in 16th century England for their, uh, for their faith in Jesus. And Latimer is famous for saying to Ridley, quoting from another of the uh, patristic fathers of the church, play the man, Ridley. Today, play the man and we will light in England such a fire, such a candle for the gospel that it will never be put out How brave are they that they go to their death in this way? And so it begs the question, why would Jesus, who is so much more powerful than they, not have had such boldness and courage? And the answer is this. Because Jesus was carrying a far greater burden than any of them were ever able to carry. None of them were carrying the weight of sin and the weight and the wages of sin is death. The scripture tells us the weight of sin is relational separation. We all know that when we sin against somebody else, it causes a break in the relationship and we experience that break in the pain for a short time. Well, imagine this, that Jesus, who had never been apart from the father and his son, who had always been in perfect union with them, even in his earthly ministry, who had great union with them, perfect union with them, was going to experience for the first time ever a separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
a separation that wasn't due just for one small sin, even one big sin, but for all of the sins of all the people in all the human history that he was going to die for. If you are a believer in Christ, all of your sins and all the weight of the angst and the relational separation that you have felt in your life with other people and even more so with God, Jesus carried that. And then he carried more because he carried the person sitting next to you and everyone in this room and everyone who has believed in the name of Jesus throughout all of human history. Now, even if that was for a period of two nights and the part of three days, it might, have, might as well have been an eternal separation for someone who knew no break in relationship to have experienced that break in relationship. You see Latimer and Ridley and all of the apostles and so many who had died for Christ went to their death knowing that the Holy Spirit would never leave them. Knowing that their union with God and their relationship with God was only going to get stronger with their death. Jesus was the only one who had ever known God truly, who went to his death knowing that he was going to experience that separation and already was experiencing it before he had died because he was carrying the weight and the shame of all of those people. You see, Jesus got in the boat with us and endured our suffering for us so that we could have courage when we face these trials and tribulations of every kind. Now that knowledge helps us even when we can't see the reason for God bringing trials and suffering for us. In situations like this story in the boat, we can see very plainly that God had a reason for doing this. Right? He was always in control, by the way. He's always in control with all of our suffering. Never out of control. And yet, he had the reason to train the disciples to show them that they could endure more than they thought they could endure. To show them how to trust in God. To not come to, them, to God and say, and say, Jesus, don't you care? but rather to come to God and saying, God, I know you're powerful over this. Stop the storm if you will, and if you won't, give me strength to endure it. This is very different than just what doesn't kill me makes me stronger because some of the time our suffering, as in the case of the martyrs, will kill us. But it always makes Jesus' church stronger. It always makes his disciples stronger. When people saw the martyrs dying for their faith, they saw Latimer and Ridley, they were, they, were, they were engrossed. They were taken up by the courage that they showed, and they gained courage as well. And so some of the time our suffering brings us, is, is brought to us for the purpose of training, to give us experience and exercise, like the Navy SEALs who just keep on climbing up on those rocks every time as the waves are crashing onto them and they get back in the boat and they come out. You know, some of the time we just get, enter into training, spiritual training, so that we can endure those storms at sea when they come and continue to trust that Jesus is in control. But still other times we face trials that we just cannot explain. We say, God, why? 
what possible purpose can you have in my friend suffering from terminal cancer when she has three small children? And when we face those things, we can only turn back to God's word, to Romans 8.28, and say all things work together for the good of those who love God. The Spirit cries out for us. We cry out. We can cry out, God, how long will this suffering endure? But know this, that God has a plan and a reason for your suffering. If nothing else, know that through our suffering, God has won many people, brought many people into his kingdom because there is a fear that comes with death and should come with death and suffering. And that is a fear that if we're not in Christ Jesus, then we will experience eternal separation from God. Just as Jesus did. And it's a very real fear. And to look glibly at death and say, I'm not scared of death, everybody faces it, is to ignore what Jesus and God, the Father and God, the Holy Spirit, say about all of life, and that is that life does not end at death, but continues on for eternity. And if the weight of our sin has not been borne by Jesus in his suffering, then there's only one person who can, can bear it, and that is we bear it ourselves. And we just can't carry that weight. The only person who can save us. At least the disciples got the first two words of their plea right. Save, Lord, because you are the only one who can save us. You are the only one. We trust you that much. We may not understand all the other things going on, but we trust you that much. Save, Lord. We need you. Call out to Jesus if you've never expressed that desire, that need for salvation. Say, save, Lord. And when you face sufferings of many kinds, trust him that he has power over all those things and he is working them together, not just for your good, but for the good of all whom he loves and who love him in return. Let's pray. Father, we may not know the reasons for suffering, but they do not prove you wrong. In fact, if anything, they prove that you may exist, and your own suffering proves that you are God and the only hope for salvation. Will you help us to put our trust in you every day, in all of our sufferings, and in all of our joys, and give us joy in the suffering that you endured because you have endured it for us and come out the other side victorious for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.